namo atasa bhagavatu arahatu asamasambuddhasa namo atasa bhagavatu arahatu asamasambuddhasa namo atasa bhagavatu arahatu asamasambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I'd like to talk about effort and motivation. Um, classically, the teachings say that there's four different kinds of right efforts. There's the effort to uh, allow or encourage wholesome states of mind to arise. There's the effort to allow or encourage wholesome states of mind that have arisen to continue. There's the effort to allow unwholesome states of mind that have arisen to uh, dissipate. And there's the effort to allow or to uh, disallow unwholesome states of mind that have arisen to arise in the future. When we're looking at these uh, different kinds of efforts, we can also see effort is one of the qualities that shows up all over the Buddhist lists and maps and ways of framing things. So when we have effort in a way which is balanced, we have something which is wholesome. And if we don't have effort that is balanced, it's very difficult for it to be wholesome. So when we look at the effort to allow or encourage wholesome states of mind to arise, you know, we were talking about today, and we've been talking about throughout this retreat, the value of relaxation and the importance of relaxation as a basis for letting the attention settle and for joy to arise. And joy then gives a possibility for concentration. And concentration then gives the potential for insight, clarity. And so we make an effort to relax. We make an effort to develop the field of awareness that suffuses through the body, allowing the body to hold attention, an attention to rest in the body. And this basis then allows many different wholesome qualities of mind to arise, as well as gives us the ground for dealing with things that arise which are unwholesome or unskillful or challenging. When we are present with what's arising, when our attention is able to stay with the object at hand, that is one condition which is useful for allowing wholesome states of mind that have arisen to continue. So we can notice you know, as things begin to settle a little bit more, you know, there can be just the experience of joy of seeing the colors of the flowers or the kind of delight and watching the shrine kind of grow and multiply. And then rather than worrying about what time the meditation is going to start next or some other preoccupation because our attention is moving from what's happening in the present moment to something else, we can just stay with the experience of joy. And so one of the things which is important to learn to do is to cultivate attention on that which is uplifting to the heart. And allow attention to stay there to rest with that which is uplifting to the heart. When states of mind arise which are unwholesome, then there's uh, many different ways that we can work with that. Unwholesome states of mind can be coming from the angle of desire, grasping, and when there's desire and grasping present, it's often useful to work with antidotes, 
to look at it in terms of something which is spacious or equanimous. When there's aversion, dislike, not wanting that arises in the mind, then it's helpful to work with it in terms of its opposite, in terms of compassion, in terms of embracing, in terms of moving towards that which we don't like. When there's restlessness present, it's helpful to bring stillness and calm. When there's too much sleepiness or lethargy, we need to bring energy. We need to bring investigation. We need to bring uh, more uh, interest. So you can see that this quality of working with opposites can bring about balance in terms of working the, the kind of the factors of the mind. And as a general recipe or remedy, this is uh, useful and ends up uh, padding out our toolkit for how to deal with the variety of things that we experience in meditation in our lives. In, in order to support more balance. I spent quite a bit of time in Australia, and at one point I spent about six weeks in a community. It was called Dhammananda, which means the bliss of Dhamma. And they started out as a community that was dedicated both to the inquiry of meditation, and they were based around the principles of organic, self-sustaining uh, ecology. And the community had been in existence for 30 years. And they had spent uh, quite a lot of effort understanding, learning, cultivating skills on how to do organic gardening, farming, in a way which was congruent with their values and uh, supportive of lovely food and a tremendous amount of knowledge on how to cultivate the ground, literally. There's ways of turning the ground which is helpful and ways of turning the ground which is not helpful. There's ways of composting which is helpful and ways of composting which is not helpful. And then they had this other thing which is this biodynamic thing where they would bury cow poo in the ground and after I don't know how many weeks take it out and it had this property to it where if you diluted it in water and spread it over several acres of land, it made the land very fertile. So there were elements that they used which were just about organic matter. There were elements that they used about structure and maintaining the structure of the soil and that there are elements that they used that had to do with getting the energy of the thing in harmony with, uh, I don't know what, goodness. I don't know what else to say. And I used to love walking through that organic vegetable garden because I would walk through and I would come out in rapture because the vitality of the lettuce and the carrots and everything was so um, tangible that just walking through the rows of the garden, you felt um, revitalized and nourished and sustained. So I could see that the effort to understand how to cultivate the ground had very good results. And even 30 years on, after doing this for 30 years, they still composted, they still dug the earth in the right way, and they still did this biodynamic with the cow poo. And so it's not as if you can cultivate the ground and have it finished. It's like it's a continual process. We have to keep coming back to that. So there is work and effort about cultivating the ground, initiating, coming here, getting here. And you know the kind of effort it took to plan and to register and to sign up and to make plans and to clear the time and the space and all of that. That's a certain kind of effort, the effort of initiation. And then we come, and then there's the effort of settling in and uh, becoming acquainted with the place and the routines and the systems and what's needed and getting a little bit of a sense of us and our differences and our similarities and our style. 
and getting a sense of this, the body-mind process and what is needed in order to receive it with kindness and graciousness and wisdom and skill. And what's needed in terms of the effort to settle in on the first day is different than on the third day. Because time has passed, we're more familiar, we have more skill, more resource, and more capacity. And yet, we keep coming back to cultivating the ground. So the ground is not something that we abandon. It's a reference that we return to. Now, the image of compost is really useful because normally we think with all of the terrible stuff, we want to get rid of it. But the compost that is put on an organic garden is the stuff that you can't use anymore. It has no more value. It's not nutritional or it's gone off. And yet when you layer it in the right way and you aerate it, it turns into the most fragrant and rich soil that is exactly what is needed for new plants and seedlings to grow. So we have this kind of a basic idea that we want to cultivate the good and get rid of the bad. And there is a way in which that's correct, and there's a way in which that's distorted. So the way in which it's correct is, is that it's correct to cultivate wholesome states of mind, and it's distorted to think that if we get rid of something, it actually goes away. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, we're waking up to the fact that when you pour too much bleach down the toilet and too much bleach down the sink and wash the floors with too much bleach, it goes somewhere. There isn't a backyard where we can pour this stuff that it doesn't somehow come around. Okay. So what's needed then is the meditation equivalent of a compost pile where we can receive the things that are no longer life-serving and allow them to transform into something which is life-sustaining and nourishing. And that's what metta is, that's what awareness is, that's what patience is. That's what discernment is. These are qualities of mind that can take that which is no longer life-serving and through it a transformation process is happening where it is then fertile ground for something which is then nourishing and life-sustaining. So the effort to sustain is different than the effort to initiate. You know, some people are great at initiating. They can start projects. You know, I can in two minutes come up with a list of 15 Dhamma talks. You know, my mind just does that. You know, but actually giving the Dhamma talks, actually sustaining the meditation, actually filling out the routine and living the life, it's a different quality of energy. It takes different aspects. And some people are really good at that. And they can slot into systems and routines and feel very much at home with that. But then there can be the problem we get so used to routines and schedules that we forget to stay fresh with what's actually happening right now. So today I've heard many times people felt tremendously relieved when I was encouraging people to trust themselves and do what they need to do. And so some people needed to sleep, and some people needed not to be in the meditation hall, and some people needed to do more walking. And everyone thought, wow, I thought you're supposed to do everything that's on the schedule. So there's a sense, well, when there's a schedule, you're supposed to fit into the schedule, and if you fit into the schedule and you do all the things on the schedule, then that's somehow going to be the magic recipe for something. I don't know what, but something. Yeah. And we forget that what's actually happening here is an encouragement to wake up to what's happening in the present moment and learn how to respond to that with compassion and wisdom. There's no magic in the schedule. And there's certainly no magic happening in the hall. This is an opportunity that's presenting itself to be used in a way which is the most supportive for each individual, and it will take different shapes depending on different needs.
So the sustaining energy sometimes gets mixed with conforming energy. And that's where we lose an edge, where the effort to just blend in and not be a problem and do what we're asked and do what we're told and do what's said becomes an inability to see clearly what's actually happening right now and what is actually needed in order to be responsive, skillful, and wise in the situation. Now, it doesn't mean that we have a, a, a rock and roll party. You know, it doesn't mean that we lose perspective, that we dismantle the structures that are here, that we break the continuity and the effort. It means that we don't take them as a kind of ritualistic uh, magic that's going to be the thing that does it for us. We don't give our power over to the form. So our authority needs to be internalized. Where are we referring to? Who has the wisdom in this place? And how do we know? And how can we tell that that's actually wisdom and not just desire or delusion or confusion? How do I know if I go for a walk and I'm not sitting in the meditation hall that it's actually not just following my desire? Well, that's really important question to ask. How do you know? Because it's really important to know when you're doing something because it's skillful and when you're doing something motivated out of fear or anxiety or desire. Because if we can't know that, then we follow the routine simply in order to conform because we're frightened of not conforming. And that's not free. That's not wise. That's not liberating. It's certainly not compassionate. It might be convenient and pleasant. So there needs to be the willingness to risk making a mistake. Because if we're not willing to risk making a mistake, there's no chance we're going to be able to figure out how do we know. How do we know what we need? How do we know if our exhaustion is exhaustion? Or how do we know if our exhaustion is just repressed emotion? How do you know? You need to know. Because what you do with repressed emotion is different than what you do with exhaustion. So there's initiating energy, sustaining energy, cultivating energy, and fruition. These have different qualities to them. Now, I want to sidetrack, talk a little bit about my own personal experience and see if I can bring it back into this theme, okay? So I mentioned that I started meditating in 1979. And from the first week of being introduced to principles of the Dhamma, I had, without a shadow of a doubt, this clarity that I wanted spiritual life to be the center focus of my life. And after a month, I had a vision of being a nun, which, you know, in my culture and my personality and all the rest of that, just like, I don't know how that happened, but never mind. Okay? And from that point of time onward, the single important thing in my life was to become enlightened. There was nothing else that had more value to me. And I remember this absolute kind of longing that I could cultivate the conditions that it would be possible that this would happen. And on birthday cakes, I'd blow out the candles, and that would be my wish for years. And obviously, being having an aspiration like that, that was also coupled with desire, had with it tremendous potential to generate conditions that supported practice. And as I shared with you, the practice that I was able to do then had a difference to me about whether I'm alive or not alive. There were transformative insights that I experienced. 
undeniable. And yet, I didn't have joy. I had bubbles of joy, but it wasn't this kind of suffusing of joy. They would come and they'd go like everything does, but it wasn't like I rested in a field of joy. And so I came to the monastery and I lived in the community and that was not easy. And after a period of time, it became obvious that I needed to leave that context and be in another context and the reasons why were complicated, but basically I didn't have the internal resources to deal with what was arising for me in those circumstances. And so I left and I went to Australia, which is another story how I ended up there. But I went to Australia. I'd never been to Australia before. And it was the first time that I'd been outside of the monastic community by myself. And I didn't know a single person there. And I was living in a remote place in the bush, in the wilderness of Australia. There were a few other people that were there, but it was all unfamiliar to me. And I loved nature. I always have loved nature. But this was like, I didn't know the plants. I didn't know the creatures. I didn't know the place. I didn't know the trees. I didn't know... The culture, I didn't know the stars, everything was different. And as much as I love nature, I was like, you know, there's kind of fear, there's something out there and it's going to get me, you know. I don't quite know what it is, but I'm sure it's out there and I'm sure it's going to get me. I mean, the fact that the most poisonous snakes in the entire world were all living there might have had something to do with it. But it wasn't a clearly articulated thought that I was frightened of the snakes. It was just frightened of the unknown. But what I felt when I went there was a sense of welcome. I felt welcomed by the people, and I felt welcomed by the land. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, being welcomed by the land. But I felt the land was absolutely delighted that I was there. Not just a little bit, but absolutely delighted that I was there. And to me, what that did, that sense of welcome, began to allow me to relax. It allowed me to feel comfortable and confident and to begin to explore You know, so for the first six weeks, I wouldn't step off the path because I had this kind of fear. Whatever was out there was going to get me. And then I started exploring and looking and checking out the trees and the creatures and getting to know what was there. And I just loved it. I so loved it. I loved being in this place with this land that had this hum to it and this place with these wonderful trees and creatures and birds and getting to know them, and it was wonderful. And naturally, because I felt a great sense of love and affinity and affection, I began to relax, and I began to feel like, well, you know, I was in a a safe place, in a friendly place. It was like I was with family. You know, so the creatures in the life and the nature started to be like family to me. You know, my friends. And I had a little hut, and where my little hut was was a little indentation in the stone that used to be a kind of river or waterfall when it would rain a lot. And I made this determination that I'd fill this little indentation, which was about this big, full of water all year round. So there was a little puddle about 30 feet away from my hut. And the creatures found out about it, and they'd all come and drink. And so I got to know the different birds that would come, and they had different kinds of calls, and I could remember or locate or recognize them by their calls. And sometimes, you know, I'd forget to fill the water, and I'd hear their call, and I'd remember, oh, I'd forgotten to fill the water, and I'd go fill it up. You know, and just stories of watching the creatures come and go and drink from this pond. So I began to just feel relaxed and interested in observing the, the different life that was around me and how it operated and feel happy that I was there. Now, as it's often the case when we're on long retreats, we do very weird practices. And one of the weird practices I was doing was tiger practice, where you don't sleep and you don't lie down for a period of time. So I was up weird hours of the night. 
And I was watching outside at weird hours of the night. There was an anthill, and I was curious the different things that were going on with the anthill. And it was really interesting to me. I would watch the anthill at night, and they have holes where they go in and out. And at night, when the temperature drops, they take all of the ants and they make a cluster so that the hole is closed except for one space that's big enough for one ant to go in and out. And so they regulate the temperature of the hill by making these ant doors. You know, and so I was just, it was just wa interested to watch how this all worked. But the anthill, that particular anthill, was close to the path. And even though I love nature, I was actually born in the city. I was born in LA. And so people who are born in the city sometimes have bright ideas that are totally disconnected from reality. So I thought, well, the anthill is too close to the path. It's spilling over in the path. If I just take a broom and gently brush the base of the anthill, then I'll just gently, friendly encourage them to move their anthill so that it's not inconvenient for the path. <laughs> Only somebody who's born in a city would think like that. Okay. So I got the broom, and I gently started brushing. I didn't have any ill will in mind. It was just totally disconnected. And lo and behold, the anthill went on red alert with a search and destroy mission. And they came pouring out of the anthill with a very clear determination to eat alive whatever it was that was doing this. And it didn't take very long for me to recognize the error of my thinking. And I put the broom against the meditation hall. And I turned around and I walked back into the charging anthill with the intention of bringing metta. <laughs> and not one ant bit me. And I was totally blown away. I thought, an ant can know the difference between a disconnected intention, which is actually harming, and the intention to not harm an ant. Not only an ant, but 10,000 ants collectively on a mission to destroy. I thought, well, what about people? You know? So my hut, I had this, oh, I love my hut. The hut was just a glorious hut. It was tiny, absolutely tiny, but it had these beautiful windows, and it looked over this exquisite valley, and it had rocks, and it had a spectacular walking path. It was about 60 feet long, made out of velvet soft sand, and I would walk up and down on this walking path, and that was my path. And my path connected to the main path that went down to the kitchen and then to the meditation hall. And along that path was an anthill that was bull anthill. Now, the bull ants were rare, and they were incredible because they were about an inch and a half long. And they had these pitchforks as hypodermic needles. And if they bit you, your, your foot swelled or whatever swelled for two weeks. It took a week for the pain to go away and a week for the itch to go away. So you had two weeks of intense feeling, okay? So you knew the bull ants real quick. I mean, it didn't take long to work out which ones they were. And these creatures were fearless. They didn't care how tall I was. It wouldn't have mattered if I was 10 feet tall. If I was on their path, they would defend their territory. They would fight me. And I learned very quick to stay out of their way on their path because that was their path. But what I found remarkable was is that they would regularly go on forays to find dead creatures that they could bring back to their anthill for food. And if they wandered onto my anthill, which they did regularly, and they encountered me, they would stay out of my way because that was my path. And again, I was completely floored. An ant understands boundaries and respect? An ant? And I started to think, 
you know, what would happen if rather than demand somebody be worthy of respect or that something inside of me be worthy of respect, I just lived with respect. So these two experiences with the ants had a profound impact on me. And my practice began to shift from wanting desperately to get enlightened, to get off the wheel, to get out of suffering, to beginning to learn and inquire and experiment of what happens if I move into experience and ask nothing of experience but bring to it respect and whatever capacity of compassion I could muster. And so I ended up spending just shy of two years in that place. And when I got there, I did things that were familiar. So I sat and I walked and I bowed and I chanted and I studied the monastic discipline and I studied suttas. And I kept a very clear structure and schedule. And I felt grateful that I could do that because everything was so unfamiliar. It was nice to have some structure that I could relate to that was familiar. And as I felt more confident and more relaxed, I began to let the structure soften and then fall away. And I noticed that as I was letting the structure soften and fall away, I was also experiencing a shift. I no longer felt like I was a lump with family in nature. I began to experience the edges of the sense of self beginning to soften and also fade away. And rather than there being me doing practice in nature, there just was more and more and more a sense of nature. There wasn't an inside nature and an outside nature. There just was nature. And it all belonged. There was no edges to where the respect was flowing, and there was no edges to where the compassion was flowing. Now, one of the things that I discovered which was really surprising to me was that at that point I had been practicing for 20 years. And I had, as I said, had experienced insights that were truly transformational. But because I felt so relaxed and so well in myself and so welcome, it allowed me to investigate experiences of fear that I never had the ground to look at before. One needs a profound degree of safety to explore that which isn't safe. And so in this unfolding, there was the ability to see and experience layers of fear, and underneath that, layers of anger, and underneath that, layers of more fear, and underneath that, more layers of anger, until I got to what was like a cesspit of self-hatred. 
And I had only associated myself with a confident, bright, smiling human being that was able to do things effectively. I had absolutely no clue that this was all there. And in the presence of the ease and well-being, in the presence of the sense of welcome, in the presence of the confidence of trusting nature, and a willingness to be able to respond to things with compassion and respect, the layers emerged into awareness, were seen, and began to dissipate. I didn't have to do anything with them. I just needed to allow them to be seen for what they were. And as nature was just arising in nature, seen and held and known for what it was, there was no problem. There was no conflict. And after excavating in this way, I began to really feel what it was like to live in my own skin and to feel joy not as a bubble that would emerge and burst, but as an abiding place, as that is what is there when some of this stuff starts to fall away. One of the ways that we often frame things is around the sense of me and mine, what belongs to me and what's mine. And we can see that when we have a sense of something that belongs to me or is mine, there's an interest to take care of it, to protect. And so, for example, if the hand is hurting, it belongs, it belongs we do what we can to take care. Or if there's somebody in the, a family that is hurting or in trouble, they belong. We do what we can to take care. And we have this boundary about what is belonging and what is not belonging. What is part of me and my family and what I relate to and what is not. And that which belongs is something we take care and protect. And that which doesn't belong, we have some kind of a mechanism that filters our capacity to take care and protect. Now, there are ways in which this is actually useful. It's not like all of this is just a, a distortion. But there's also ways in which it's not actually accurate. When you're sitting there as nature arising in nature, what is the limit? What doesn't belong? When compassion flows without regard or designation, what that does is it doesn't locate oneself as a separate being in time and space. And because one is not located as a separate being in time and space, 
the reciprocation of everything that around is also received. Not only is there no limit and boundary to what goes out, there's no blocking of what comes in. And so I could feel the delight and the rejoicing. I could feel the power of the nature of the trees. I could feel the aliveness of the rocks and still into the movement of the stone. I could experience the creatures as if they were not separate because they weren't separate. There's something powerful that happens when one configures an aspiration to awaken and one allows one's energy and effort and motivation to focus in a way where one realizes and recognizes that there is a value in moving out of suffering. And for some people, that constellates by wanting to bring every aspect of their life force and their resource and their energy into that process of awakening. Because the potential of being free, the glimpse of what it actually is to be without suffering, is without compare in this world. There is nothing else that measures up to that. And yet, in constellating me, doing the practice to get out of suffering. I create the very obstacles that keeps me from experiencing the joy, the freedom, the peace that is longed for. Lumpur Cha used to say, when you buy a banana, you buy the peel as well as the banana. You don't just buy the banana. Now, you don't eat the peel, but you bought the peel. Now, the peel is useful because it protects the banana. But when you're ready to eat the banana, you peel away the peel and eat the banana. There's something about that in this. The desire to be free from suffering is often an essential ingredient to motivate the energy needed to bring together the conditions in order to then relinquish the desire. So what are we doing here? And why have you come? What is important to you? There's no possible way I can answer that for you. But sometimes in order to be free, in order to experience joy, 
we need to begin to let go of the very structures that have supported us getting to exactly the place where we are now to be able to do this. There's nothing wrong with this schedule. There's nothing wrong with retreats. There's nothing wrong with structure and form. But we need to come into right relationship with them in the same way we need to come into right relationship with every single other aspect of our life. Where is the authority? Who knows and who has the answers? So I leave this for reflection for this evening, that all of us may come into right relationship, that all of us may be able to understand and cultivate the various different kinds of effort that are needed in order that we experience profound and unshakable joy and peace. So I'd like to close with uh, verses of sharing and aspiration on page 35. chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may 
the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, God in spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind. and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, and surpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled. So we can close with a closing homage. On page 13. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.